The future look and feel of your office will depend more than on furniture or slick technology. That's because it'll likely include employees from other agencies. The Trend General Services Administration officials say they're hearing is agency desire to share buildings, conference space, and training rooms as a way to save money and improve the employee experience. For more, Federal News Network's Jason Miller spoke to the commissioner of the GSA's Public Building Service, Nina Albert. Agencies are willing and interested in having the conversation about when is the appropriate time to share space, uh, what types of spaces are you willing to share. Um, And so we're engaging with agencies on those topics. There's no clear decisions yet, but I just think about conference space. That's going to be of greater need in the future as people pull their teams together in off-sites or what what we're now calling on-sites. But those types of conference spaces are uh, in high demand. And so are those the right types of spaces to be sharing? There's other kinds of spaces like training labs. Could agencies be sharing those types of spaces? And as a result, they could garner some, you know, additional space efficiency. I think everyone's looking for that now. We know GSA has two challenges in front of it. Number one, you have the short-term challenge. A lot of the lease space is coming up in the next couple of years. Uh, and then there's agencies with immediate needs today. Okay, what am I going to do? And then you have the longer-term goals. You mentioned uh, in, during the uh, ACT-IAC Shared Services Summit about you know the five-year plan. From the immediate perspective, what are some of those conversations? Are you seeing the consolidation of office space? Are you seeing agencies sharing more than maybe in the past? Uh, any trends you'd point to? Yeah, I mean, I think that pre-pandemic, we had been on a trajectory of consolidating office space. That's true of the federal government as it is true of um, the private sector. There's generally been consolidation of office space. So right now in the immediate, uh, we know that approximately 50% of our lease portfolio uh, is expiring in the next five years. Uh, We have been and continue to be very diligent about managing that space. So we engage agencies two years before their lease expirations and really work with them to determine what their longer-term needs are, whether should we should be uh, re-upping or taking on a new lease. Or what we're really seeing is what we're trying to promote is reuse or use of our existing federal space to consolidate those leases into. And you're seeing uh, that activity, it's really what I call block and tackle, you know, as leases come up, making really sound decisions uh, today that you can make uh, while we keep our eye to that long term and try and understand the trends that might affect the portfolio over the long run. I know there's been a big push over the years for agencies move into federal space to share you know, an office in, in downtown Philadelphia or Denver or Seattle or wherever versus leasing new. Any statistics come to mind or anything that kind of stands out to you that, that shows, hey, this is seen an uptick or even maybe an anecdote of, a, of an agency who had their own space and then decided, hey, you know what, we're going to share it because this makes more sense for us for these reasons? Yeah, I think it's really important that I clarify what we mean by sharing. So in the past, agencies would really look at, you know, whatever, their 20,000 square foot office need and then maybe go out with um, a request for a lease proposal for that 20,000 square foot need. What we're looking at now is really what I'll call multi-tenant buildings. So the federal building now becomes a building where there's multiple agencies in it. They still have distinctive and unique and enclosed 
uh, suites within that office building. So the building is shared, but the space itself is not. The model that's becoming interesting to agencies is what I'll call federal co-working, which is in fact shared space, where we would have all the amenities of flexible space in one suite and maybe multiple agencies who only have like a small team, for example, in City X. They still want to have access to the safety and security and access to an office, but they don't need an entire suite to themselves and they're willing to share with another agency that might also have a small team need. So that's what we're exploring right now is federal co-working and that's really the purest definition of shared space. Towards trends, I mean, right now we're seeing people act when a decision is required. For example, a lease expiration. Uh, we're seeing a lot of agencies also look more comprehensively across their portfolio to see how to responsibly uh, consolidate and save money, but also deliver a great experience uh, for their employees and also serve the American public. But in general, uh, I'd say the trend that's uh, of most interest to me is uh, really how to take advantage of this openness that everybody has to try and really figure out the best delivery model for agency missions and how can space support that. And so we're exploring all different types of space patterns, whether it's multi-tenant buildings, whether it's co-working space and others, to make sure that we understand uh, where the value is. Commissioner Albert, I want to swing back around. You mentioned the Workplace 2030. GSA has an innovation lab about uh, that you guys stood up about a month ago, and I was uh, happy to be at the opening of that and then saw all the cool technology rolling out and the furniture and the, the new way of thinking. It's been roughly a month or so, maybe a month and a half. What are some of the initial feedback you're getting? What are some of the thoughts now that you've had this out for agencies to come and test drive? Amazing response. Uh, first of all, I think people are really ex- excited to see what's new and what's next. And I can't even tell you how much energy there is around just that prospect. So we have a backlog, I think, of about 120 tours, different agencies wanting to come and see, but it's not limited to the federal government. This is the first workplace innovation lab of its kind in the country. So we're seeing private sector uh, partners wanting to come and take a look at it and see what we're doing. We're also hosting other governments to come and check it out. Why are they so excited about it? I think it's because um, people really want to understand how flexibility is manifesting in space, right? Usually when you're building out real estate, there's something fixed about it. And the furniture manufacturers, technology providers are all really trying to figure out how do you build in as much flexibility as possible because we know that the next several years are going to require that. Anyway, we've just gotten, like I said, we've got a backlog. Our team's really both excited but very, very busy uh, cycling people through there. And I would say that the most positive, the types of response that we get are people's interest in having their teams experience it because they want their employees to have access to the ideas of what's next and give input into that. And so that's where I think folks are really most uh, most excited is that employee engagement around the workplace of the future. I know it's only been a short amount of time, and this may seem like a what have you done for me lately question, but any changes you can see coming up? Anything you've said, oh, okay, let's let's do that in 
July or September or whatever because there's a, either demand for it or at least you've seen some sort of like signal from you getting the same question over and over. Anything come, come yet or is it still maybe a bit too early? A little bit too early for right now. Um, the member I told, or I don't know if you remember, but um, the Workplace Innovation Lab has two purposes. The first is to be a showcase for new furnitures, fixtures, and technology. But there's another component to it, which is our piloting federal co-working space. And so that is a, I think it's about a six-month pilot. And so that's what we're really testing for is to see what the demand, the interest, and the need would be for that kind of space. Because I think that that could be a truly innovative uh, approach for federal real estate in the future. Nina Albert, Commissioner of the Public Building Service at the General Services Administration, speaking there with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Check out Jason's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama. And there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty 
to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations, but you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And you know, I flirted with a couple of them, and I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me, I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet 
Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an wow. audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards a society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort I, of the I way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. That's you know? <laughs> and um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about traveling, getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.